Hello, I'm Alison Hilliard and welcome to The Word, the series where we invite our guests to talk about their lives through the lens of their favourite passages from the Bible. Each of their choices will be read by the actor David Suchet. My guest today has been described as having the mind of a theologian, a saintly smile, the eye of a poet and the beard of a prophet, as a recluse with a massive social conscience and as an intellectual giant. No surprise then that by the age of 36 he'd become Oxford's youngest professor. He was ordained in 1977, made Bishop of Monmouth, then Archbishop of Wales and finally the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is of course Rowan Williams, the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury until 2012. His decade as leader of the world's 77 million Anglicans was a controversial one. He went head-to-head with the Blair administration over the Iraq war, and his time was dominated by the issues of gay priests, same-sex marriages and women bishops, with headlines predicting splits and divisions in the church. Recently, however, he's returned here to his scholarly roots and become master of Magdalen College, Cambridge. Lord Rowan Williams, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Now, if I gave you the choice here, which would you take, to be Master Hare of Magdalen College or to be Archbishop of Canterbury? I think just at the moment, I'm very happy to be where I am. (laughs) You make the choices you make at the times you make them. And where God calls you at one moment isn't necessarily where he calls you ten years later. So I hope it's a response to a call being here. And I'm very happy and very grateful to be here. Let's turn to the first passage you've chosen, which is taken from Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 12. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. 
it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, why are these verses important to you? For me, these verses express almost the entirety of my Christian faith. And it's important that they begin with the simple word of invitation, come all you who are thirsty. And that's like Jesus, of course, saying, come to me all who are heavy laden. It's invitation. The first word is invitation. And I love it that in the older translations, it begins, ho, everyone that thirsteth, as if somebody's shouting out, over here, come on. So it begins with that invitation. And that invitation also carries with it the insight that somehow we have to discover what really nourishes us. Most of the time we're, as it were, eating the spiritual equivalent of junk food. And God is saying, why spend money on what is not really food? Why are you wasting yourself on what doesn't nourish you, make you grow? Then there's that extraordinary moment where the prophet says, I'll make an everlasting covenant. My faithful love promised to David, I've made him a witness. And one of those moments in Isaiah, and there are so many, when you see in advance the sort of lifting up of the figure of the son of David as the one on whom all human desire converges. And then you have this picture of the nations running towards the sign. And this very powerful picture of you know, the rain and the snow coming down from heaven, they don't go up, they come down. You know, when it's rained, it's rained. When it's snowed, it's snowed. It comes down and it stays there and it soaks in. And that's what the word of God is like, the word of mercy, the word of forgiveness. So it's not surprising that at the end the trees of the field will clap their hands. I just feel it's a kind of digest of the whole of the good news. So it's a wake-up call, if you like. It's a call to concentrate on what's important. It's a wake-up call which says to us, you really need to think about whether you're nourishing your soul's life. But more than just a wake-up call, it's not just saying, get your act together. It begins with that word of invitation. It's God's initiative first. It's not that I sit there worrying and work out a scheme. While I'm busy worrying and working out, God, as it were, taps him on the shoulder and says, over here. But maybe we all need those wake-up calls at various points in our lives. And I'm wondering for you, did you receive a, a wake-up call of a sort? I'm thinking of that time when you had a brush with death before you were Archbishop of Canterbury, when you were caught up near the World Trade Centre on the 11th of September 2001. Was that a wake-up call of a sort? It's an interesting question. I wouldn't quite describe it as a wake-up call, but it was a moment of, well, in a rather complicated way, a moment of gift, partly because of the people I was with. Tell us what happened. I was with a group of people who'd gathered together for a seminar in this building just around the corner from the World Trade Center. We were going to have a seminar on spiritual direction. And we did have a seminar on spiritual direction, but not the one we'd planned. I still remember somebody saying as we huddled together in the stairwell of the building, wondering if the building was going to collapse at any moment, somebody just saying almost casually, well, if I had to choose the people I wanted to die with, this would be all right. And the feeling that we were in a strange way, ready to face something because of one another. And that was a deep insight into the nature of the church, 
we can face death, we can face challenge because of one another, not because of the great people we are individually, but somehow because of, well, because of the love that there is between us. And that was very, very deep at that moment, I think. Do you think you were ready to face death at that moment? At that moment, I think I was, because I was where I was with who I was with. I look back on it now and think, what? How could we speak like that and feel like that at that moment? And yet I think that that's what we did. Well, let's move on to your second passage, and it's from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Difficult passage, that, for some. Why have you chosen this particular passage? It is a difficult passage. I mean, it's one of Paul's great complicated images, which... I can imagine he starts with feeling, oh, this is going to be very clear, and then it gets more and more difficult as he goes on. But it ends with one of the most, appropriately, luminous pictures that we have in the New Testament. We all with unveiled faces. Something that stands between us and God has been taken away in Christ. And as we look into the light that blazes from the face of Christ, our own faces shine in response. Now, Paul gets tied up in this argument about Moses and the law, and I think it's very easy to see that as a kind of simple-minded, oh, Jewishness is, is all over and done with, and we're doing it better. But I think if you put it in the context of Paul's whole discussion in all his letters, it's always about us, it's not about them, it's not about some people in another faith, Jews who've got it wrong. It's about that dimension of us who go on getting it wrong. We still hear Moses read and a veil covers our hearts. Not just our faces, but our hearts. Something about our, our feelings, not just our ideas, that's muffled, obscured. And I put this together with, well, with all sorts of other things in the New Testament, with the veil of the temple being torn in two, at the crucifixion in Matthew's Gospel, I put it together with St. John's Gospel talking about the light that is in Christ. And the idea that 
what happens in especially in the death of Christ is that something is torn apart and we see as never before like a great flash of lightning tearing the sky in half as the veil of the temple is torn and when when all that's torn in half what do we see we see the face of mercy we see again the welcome of God and as we look into that our own faces begin to shine we become human in the way we're meant to be You've referred to some of the difficulties of interpretation of Mm. that verse. I suppose some people reading it might ask the question, who are those people who are still veiled today, thinking that those who are not veiled are Christians who have accepted Jesus as Christ and would find an uncomfortable reading in that? I'm quite happy that people should find this uncomfortable because, as I say, Paul is always challenging me first and us first. So often we can take bits of Paul and say, well, it's about them, it's about those poor benighted souls who don't have the faith that we have. And I think Paul is saying, okay, so you have faith and you're growing in that faith. And at the same time, the more you grow in that faith, the more light there is in your life, the more you're able to see those bits of you that that are still veiled, that are still saying no. The division runs through the middle of each of us. So for me, one of the most important things about reading and interpreting the Bible is first ask, what's the question addressed to me? Not how do I take this and roll it up into a baton to bash somebody off the head with, but what's it saying to me? I wonder what do you think the passage has to say to a multicultural Briton today? Hmm. Not an easy question, I think. But one of the things which I take from this is in verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And some of that freedom, I think, has to be freedom from anxiety. I live in a diverse society. How do we protect the Christian faith against its enemies? And I think Paul says to that, look, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Just start with gratitude for the gift you've received. Let that radiate and see what happens and trust God for that. And to me, this really is something very crucial. So often, I've said it so many times, so often the message the church gives out is we're anxious, we're worried, we're afraid. And I see here Jesus as it were standing on the the frontiers of the church shaking his head and saying, don't be, just look at me. It's a message, as you've said, about the permanence of the glory of God and celebrating that. Mm. But I suppose as you do look at Britain today, if you can use that phrase of a post-Christian country, (laughs) you might also be tempted to ask, where is the permanence or the glory of God in that? And the short answer is that the permanence of God's glory is where it's always been, God. And God remains God. And if God is God, and God's will is for our peace and our healing, God will find ways of making that real and Those may be ways which bypass some of the traditional church identities and forms we've known. Who knows? But God is God, and God is the God we meet in Jesus. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. And the ultimate test is, are there still people whose unveiled faces are being transformed? And there are lots of them around. Now, your final verse is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Why are these verses special to you? They're a reminder that what we try to live out in the church, the attempt to live together as a community of love, isn't just an attempt to be nice human beings. It's much more trying to let the eternal reality of God come alive in us. And that eternal reality is the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Trinity, as Christians say. And that's the background of all this. Jesus is not just a human being transmitting nice ideas or ideals to his followers. If you look into the face of Jesus, you see reflected the eternal life of God. And that in turn is reflected in you, not just you as an individual, but you as the community trying to live in unity. And in these words, Jesus is both hopeful and realistic. He's praying for all those who will believe, praying for, for people who are not insiders, as it were, but for the entire potential body of believers, which is anyone and everyone. And at the same time, he's saying, the world doesn't know you. We have somehow, as a human race, locked ourselves into all kinds of self-deceit. And Jesus simply says, well, the world doesn't know, but I know you. And they know I know you. <laughs> and that knowledge and that glory is reflected in all, all these readings. And this is a deliberate choice of mine, of course, have radiance or glory somewhere in them. Because that sense of light streaming out, not just illuminating somebody's face or eyes, but lighting up the landscape. I think that's a theme in all of these readings. We also have an image here of Jesus praying. Mm. How do you pray today? Oh, badly and not enough. But it seems to me that to talk about the gift of the Spirit is to talk about the way in which Christian prayer is always the Holy Spirit taking us to where Jesus is, as it were, sitting us down in the place of Jesus and saying, now look where Jesus looks. Look at the Father. And because the Spirit takes us to that place, we look at God through the eyes of Jesus and we say what Jesus says. We say, Father. So all our prayer is, again, that entry into a life that's eternal, a life that's already there, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when I sit down or kneel down in the morning to 
pray. What I try to remind myself of is I haven't got to make a lot of noise to attract attention from a long way off. I have to settle into something as powerful and just there as the waves on the seashore. Just sense that I'm carried by that eternal act of love, which through the spirit becomes an act of grace in me. So I, I just have to shut up and sit still and, as you might say, let Jesus happen. Did your own life of prayer change when you were Archbishop of Canterbury in any way? Hmm. Not fundamentally, because I think what I was aware of as Archbishop was just that I needed to do what I'd been doing only more. Silence in the early morning meant more and more. It was all important to begin the day, a day which was likely to be a bit stressful and a bit hectic, just by sinking anchor at the start of everything. And sometimes, if it was a time of stress or anxiety, that silence could be very bleak. You could feel there wasn't much going on and not very much sense of anyone being there sometimes. But it had to be done. And as with all prayer, you do it, whether it feels rewarding or not. You just do it because that's what you're told to do and that's eating your greens, really. Can we just go back to verse 23 of that passage where Jesus talks of his desire for complete unity and it's something you touched on a moment ago. What exactly do you think Jesus means by that? Hmm. I wish I knew, really. He's not, I think, sketching a project for church unity in an institutional sense. He's saying, and it's of course a theme in all of St. John's writings, he's saying that there's a unity of heart or of vision that has to be absolutely solid among the friends of Jesus. Unity means not asking what's my advantage over you. Unity means not seeking my agenda at the expense of everyone else. Unity means the willingness to try and walk together and think together and be grateful for one another in that context. And of course, out of that, changes come and institutions begin to move. But I think it's it's at that deep level of unity of vision, being where Jesus is, being in the same place, the one place of Jesus that is praying together. Because that search for unity was a theme of your time oh, as, as so. Arch- Archbishop. And I know at one stage you were described as a good man who has been sacrificed on the altar of church unity. <laughs> oh dear. I believed and believe very strongly that, uh, as somebody once said, only the whole church knows the whole truth. And that does mean that the search to preserve some sort of unity isn't just trying to serve an institution's needs, it's trying to serve truthfulness. Now that can be very frustrating for people who have deep, serious convictions that the church has got to change in this way or that. But I suppose one of the things which some people found most difficult when I was archbishop was that I I couldn't quite persuade myself that that just overruled the need to keep somehow in contact, somehow in step, find the ways in which we could not let go of each other. So how painful a journey in that search for some sort of unity of people coming together, how painful a journey was that? 
Well, it was very painful at times, and and I couldn't come up with any theories or plans that would solve it or, or create shortcuts. And I know many people thought that I, I put unity above other priorities in a way that wasn't right. I couldn't ever see unity as just an alternative priority to some other things. It was actually the way in which we came to true judgments at the end of the day. However passionately I believe in something and want it to happen, I still as a Christian have to think, well, how do I get where God wants us all to be with, not without, fellow believers? How do I hang on? How do I keep in touch? A final thought, and I was just thinking about your book, being Christian and you've a selection there where you encourage readers to think about the character they would align themselves with or identify themselves with in the parables of Jesus. What biblical character do you think you're most like? Ooh, goodness, that's a difficult one. Because whenever you read Bible stories, you're likely to find yourself in quite different places. I've sometimes talked about the parable of the prodigal son as a story in which actually the more you go on the more you identify with all the characters or even the pigs but is there one that's more Rowan Williams than another it really does depend which day you ask me I think part of my temptation when I was a young man and very pious and well behaved in some ways I think I was a bit of an elder brother and had to discover a bit more of the rest of it Well, on that note, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Rowan Williams. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you very much. I'm Alison Hilliard, and you've been listening to The Word on Things Unseen, the platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.